Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, A Well-Researched Christmas Today, with a message entitled, The Meekness and Majesty. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The account of the birth of Jesus begins with an announcement to an elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And from there, Luke moves to another announcement very similar, yet very different, to a young virgin named Mary. So let's read today's text. Luke 1, 26-33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You know, when we read this account, we're struck by the fact that Dr. Luke, who who has researched this event and records it as faithful and a careful historian would, wants us to connect the announcement of the birth of Jesus with the announcement of the birth of John. You remember that the book of Luke begins not with the story of Jesus, but with the story of an aged priest named Zechariah and his aged wife Elizabeth and the surprising announcement that Elizabeth will bear a son in her old age. You know, the opening line of today's scripture begins with the words, in the sixth month, which means in the sixth month since Elizabeth has become pregnant. Elizabeth, the barren old woman, has conceived a child and is now at the end of her second trimester. And furthermore, Luke has told us that Elizabeth has kept herself hidden for the first five months of her pregnancy, and and now, of course, it's the sixth month. Her pregnancy has become well-known now, and we have to assume that it's created a stir. An old woman, well-advanced, has become pregnant, and that after her husband has become a mute. And those who know this couple in Jerusalem knew that her husband has been disciplined by God. He's been unable to speak after an angel appeared to him in the temple. And now, after that amazing event, this. Elizabeth is expecting a child. I mean, what in the world is going on? Luke then leaves that account, fast forward six months, and suddenly we meet Mary. And as we move from one account to the next, immediately we see the similarity between those two stories. Both women, that is Elizabeth and Mary, become pregnant out of a miraculous work of God. The situation should not have happened. Old women don't become pregnant, and neither do virgins. So I need to stop here and address this because every single Christmas, we have people out there who deny the virgin birth. And furthermore, I have on an odd occasion also heard people discounting the Elizabeth story. I mean, some claim that Luke must have just made her up. After all, old women and childbirth just don't go well together. So let's settle the matter. The real question behind this is the question of whether a miracle is possible. If you're one of those who argue that it's not possible, well, you'll also want to discount Jesus' healing of the sick and casting out of demons and calming the storm and raising the dead, and for that matter, Jesus' own rising from his own tomb on Resurrection Sunday. I mean, the New Testament is chock full of miracle accounts. 
And while you're all about poo-pooing the naivete of Bible believers who will just accept one of those miracle stories, I mean, you should know that you also have insurmountable problems that you must address. For one, how do you explain the fact that there exists something rather than nothing? since the very best scientists among us categorically deny that matter is eternal and that it must have come into existence somehow, then how is it that something can come from nothing? I mean, no scientific theory will ever explain that. You you have to resort to a miracle. And the Bible states that God spoke the universe into being. That which can be seen came from the mouth of him who cannot be seen. The eternal brought forth that which is temporal. What would you call that? I mean, you can't call that the laws of science. Christians have called that a miracle. God simply brought it to be. I mean, after all, he's God. And since that's so, why does it seem impossible then that God can cause an old woman to bear a child and that God can cause a maybe 15-year-old virgin to bear a child? I mean, after all, the Bible never says that virgins sometimes give birth as if, you know, the Bible writers didn't know that both a man and a woman are required for conception. Now, the point of all of this is that the God who spoke the universe into existence can also speak and a virgin will conceive. You know, just so we understand, you know, there's no subtle nuance about the Greek word virgin. You know, Luke tells us that Mary has never known a man. She's betrothed, so let's understand that, that the rules around betrothal were extremely stringent. You know, Joseph and Mary you know, weren't escaping for dates in the evening and then they were necking and things got out of hand. You know, if that's what you think, that's because you're assuming North American morality and common North American cultural practices. It is sheer folly to read our culture back into every other culture. You know, I've noticed how amazingly myopic North Americans can be. I mean, watch a historical movie, so-called. And the characters have all the values of contemporary North Americans. It's, it's so ridiculous. But in the minds of many, it's impossible for them to imagine any culture with any values that are unlike ours. But in truth, there are people and cultures and time periods in history in which human interaction was not like it is in our day at all. Now, all of this is a setup for an important detail in this story. When you hear that Mary was betrothed, you've got to understand betrothal. When people get engaged in our culture under normal circumstances, you know, they make an announcement and the woman is sporting an engagement ring. And if for some reason they break off their engagement, you know, it's often attended with hurt feelings, but it's common for us to say, well, better breaking off the engagement than getting a divorce later on. That, that is to say, it's not that unusual to hear of a couple breaking off their engagement but not in the ancient world of the Jews. Betrothals were not arranged by the couple, but rather by the couple's parents. The parents then would arrange a betrothal ceremony. And after the betrothal ceremony, both the man and the woman would go back and live with their parents. No physical contact was permitted between them. It was considered a time for emotional and spiritual preparation, not for displays of physical love. If a betrothal was broken, it involved a divorce. That's because betrothal was considered binding. And furthermore, the only reason for breaking a betrothal was sexual unfaithfulness. Being a virgin at the wedding was not just highly valued, it was rigidly demanded. 
The betrothal period would usually last for about a year, and then it was followed by a marriage, and then and only then would the couple display physical affection, including, of course, sexual relationships. And therefore, to find a betrothed woman who's a virgin is not an exception, but it is among the godly in Israel simply assumed. It would be shocking if it were to be otherwise. Anything short of that would be a great sin against God and a violation of the covenant with your God. It would precipitate a divorce and a lifetime of scandal and shame. Of course Mary was a virgin. I mean, what else would she be? And the idea that some have suggested that Mary had some kind of a secret sexual affair with a Roman soldier and and that she concocted this story, well, that's equally ridiculous. Sexual relations with someone while betrothed would not be considered as an affair, but as adultery, the violation of the seventh commandment, and lying is the violation of the ninth commandment. To do such a thing would make Mary not a godly woman, but an evil woman. And so we're left with either the reality that Luke, as a good historian, has thoroughly researched and investigated this account and found it to be true, or that the entire New Testament is built on a fraud and therefore the entire Christian faith is a deception. Now, it's easy to find plenty of evidence for believing the truth of the New Testament that it is based upon fact. But consider this. Given that Luke was under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and given that Paul had spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus, and given that Mary came to reside in Ephesus in her later years, and given that Luke extensively records what Mary had to say after the visit of the angel. So it seems logical to me to assume that Luke must have interviewed Mary extensively on this matter. And so we have to assume that if Mary was lying about being a virgin, Well, she kept on consistently lying about it well into old age and never broke from the story. That's just illogical. The only other conclusion that we can come to is that, well, the story's true. What Luke records is exactly what happened. Did you know that your gift of support this month will help provide the daily Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Neufeld across Canada and throughout much of Asia on the radio? Your financial gifts provide access to Bible teaching around the world through Back to the Bible Canada's daily broadcast and all of our online resources like our mobile app and podcast. Your gifts also support the Ministry of Laugh Again, which is a daily program that brings a message of hope and joy that's found in Christ. Plus, your support also helps our young adult ministry, In Doubt, which exists to bring God's truth to the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day through a weekly podcast. These are just a few of the ministries that you help provide when you give to Back to the Bible Canada, a ministry whose primary goal is to teach the Bible. This December, would you help us reach our year-end goal of $427,000 so that we can start off strong in 2019? Join us in sharing the light of Christ to a world in darkness. To donate today, call 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca. Both Elizabeth's pregnancy and Mary's pregnancy, well, they're impossible pregnancies. 
both happen not because of the normal course of human affairs. I mean, they happen in the same way the world came into being and in the same way that the Christian faith came into being. It happened because God intervened. It, it happened because he created a miracle. Also, in both cases, that is, in the case of Elizabeth and in the case of Mary, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to announce the news. And more, as, as we read the account and look forward to verse 36, we find out that the two women, Elizabeth and Mary, well, they're related. Verse 36, if you look at it, says to Mary that she is to know that her relative Elizabeth is also pregnant. Now, the King James Version translates the word relative as cousin, that your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant. Now, that translation has given rise to the idea that Jesus and John the Baptist were, in fact, second cousins. But in truth, the Greek word is rightly translated as simply relative. And so, well, if you're like my wife, you have a very extensive list of relatives. I, I like to say that my wife is related to the entire province of Saskatchewan. That's to say that when my wife talks about her relatives, I mean, she knows her cousins and she also knows her second and third and even fourth cousins. She knows her forebearers and she knows who married whom. And that's what a relative is to her. And Luke never tells us how Elizabeth and Mary are related. You know, in the ancient Jewish world, genealogies were extremely important. We know that's the case because both Matthew and Luke contain an extensive genealogy of Jesus. So and clearly, Jesus can trace his genealogy back at the very least 2,000 years. That tells us how it is that Elizabeth, who belongs to the tribe of Levi, and Mary, who belongs to the tribe of Judah, well, they're related. The relationship doesn't have to be overly close, but I do assume that both women knew how they were related. I mean, Elizabeth could have been Mary's aunt, twice removed, on her mother's side. My wife would say, yeah, that's related, all right. Well, so Elizabeth the Levite and Mary the Judahite are relatives. Both could not have had children, but both will soon give birth. Their children will change the history of the world, and at any rate, as we read the account, it becomes clear that not only are Mary and Elizabeth related in some fashion, Luke doesn't explain exactly how, but we also know that the two women knew each other. Again, Luke doesn't tell us how that came to be. I mean, after all, Elizabeth lives in Jerusalem and Mary lives in Nazareth. And yet for all the similarities in these two stories, the birth narratives of Elizabeth and Mary, there, there are also incredible differences. I mean, most important, would you please notice that, that the announcement of the conception of John came in the temple in Jerusalem, which, which is the worldwide center of the worship of the true God. And in contrast, the announcement of the conception of Jesus happened in Nazareth. We all know of Nazareth. I mean, who doesn't know about Nazareth? I mean, today, if you go to Israel, you'll want to visit Nazareth. It's about 20 kilometers west of the Sea of Galilee. It's the largest city in the north district of Israel, and it's often been called the Arab capital of Israel. Its population is slightly over 75,000 people, and, and tourists visit this place from all over the world. The Catholic Church of the Annunciation, which everyone visits when they go to Nazareth, is the largest Christian church building in the Middle East. But in Jesus' day, Nazareth was of no account. It's a tiny settlement. I mean, the estimates range from about 120 to 150 people, although some now suggest it might have been bigger than that. But whatever its size, it was tiny. It was insignificant. I, I suspect it was probably backward. I mean, most people living in Israel, especially 
those living in Jerusalem would never have heard about Nazareth. It's, it's kind of like asking people in Vancouver if they know where Spuzzum is. I mean, who knows? Who even wants to know? It can't be that important. And what an amazing contrast. God sends his angel Gabriel to his temple in announcing the conception of John. But here, when the conception of Jesus is about to take place, it happens in nowhere land. It's jarring and startling to think that the event that changed the world would happen in such obscurity. Nazareth was never mentioned in the Old Testament. Why? Because nothing ever happens there. The Jewish Talmud, although it mentions 63 Galilean towns at that time period, never mentions Nazareth. No ancient historians ever mentioned Nazareth, and that's why, for many years, liberal scholars who doubt every affirmation in the Bible, well, they had for years argued that the town just simply didn't exist. They said it was an invention of the biblical writers, just like the invention of Elizabeth and the invention of the, of the virgin birth. I mean, after all, if Nazareth wasn't mentioned in some extra-biblical account that's in our possession, well, the liberals always said, well, it couldn't have existed. Again, we're assuming that Luke is no historian at all. Rather, he's a writer of fiction. And all that changed, however. You know, very recently, and I mean recently by beginning in the 1950s to this day, archaeological digs found watchtowers and olive presses and and basements of homes, about 35 homes on about 2.5 hectares or about six acres of land, a real town. Nazareth had been discovered pretty well where the Bible said it was. And whatever its size at the time of Jesus, we know it was small and insignificant. It wasn't crowded. It had lots of open space. You'll remember the first time a man named Nathaniel heard of Jesus. Well, his reaction is recorded in John 1, 45 to 46. And that passage says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, you know, wherever you live, there's a town somewhere close to you that everyone loves to make jokes about. You know, it's Podunkville. You know, I come from a town like that. It was called Greendale. You know, it's the place where you're fortunate to make it out of high school. You know, it had one store and it had one gas station and it had two churches. Both of them were Mennonite and, and then some farmers. And those of us from Greendale, well, we didn't have the privilege of looking down on anyone. There was no one left lower or more insignificant than we were. And that was Nazareth. And and so we have the great contrast between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. You know, if I were orchestrating the events, I mean, I would have reversed the order. I would have had John's announcement come in Nazareth. And then Jesus, well, that would have come in Jerusalem. But such is the story of Christmas. There's a majesty to it, but there's a a lowliness, a humbleness, a, a meekness in the story. It begins with an announcement in a small, insignificant town called Nazareth. But isn't that just like God? Apparently, a survey had been done in Europe at the very beginning of the 1500s of the most influential theological centers in all of Europe. Those of you who know history will perk up. Of all the universities most likely to impact the world, no one ever thought of mentioning that, that small school in a small German town of Wittenberg. But 15 years later, fires of the Protestant Reformation, which was to permanently change the world, came from that very place, as that insignificant university produced Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. Now, everyone knows about Wittenberg, but that's just like God. 
You see, the Nazareth story is just God's way of doing things. I mean, Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 28, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God always embarrasses the wise, the supposed leaders. And why wouldn't he do it when the most significant moment in human history was about to occur? So what can we learn from the Christmas story? Well, we can learn a number of things, but we can surely learn that in God's economy or in God's ordering of events, Splendor is reserved for the humble and not for the proud in the centers of prominence. Listen to Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Or listen to James 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God reserves splendor for the humble. It's his way of expressing that God can't be approached when we have a haughty spirit. God overturns the tables of the proud and he identifies with the least of these. And what does that tell us? I think it means that if you want to find the splendor of God, well, I doubt whether you're going to find it in Hollywood and London and Washington and Paris and Rome. You'll not find it in the finest universities in the places of global finance and politics and power. You'll find it in the place of humility, the place where the supposedly wise turn up their noses and say, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? You have to be humble to find Christ. You have to be needy. In the words of Jesus, you have to be poor in spirit and meek. The proud and arrogant never find a savior. That's the lesson of Christmas. It is good news only to some. It's good news to the humble. You know, when we think about the majesty of God, we think about finding him in all those opulent places, but really, he shows up at the most unexpected places where he feels just as comfortable. Yeah, I, you know, when I think about, you know, Nazareth, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, all of those kind of sayings that were there in that day, and yet this exactly is where God chose to impregnate Mary and that the birth of the Savior would happen there. So, you know, these are the wonderful things about, you know, the nature of God. He is the one who, you know, comes to the humble and he passes by the proud. You know, I I had said that God doesn't, you know, come to Paris and Rome, that doesn't mean that he doesn't go there. Of course he does. But God is always surprising us by choosing the least of those so that we would never glory in ourselves but in God. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for a well-researched Christmas right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hey, are you ready for a vacation? Amidst the winter blues, take the time to join Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway for a week of fun, sun, and spiritual refreshment in the Caribbean on Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. You'll enjoy fellowship, worship, inspirational music, laughter, and spiritual refreshment with Phil and his Laugh Again friends, including special musical guest Rika. So make plans now to join us February 3rd to 10th 
2019 for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise. All the info you need can be found by either visiting laughagain.ca or calling us directly at 1-800-663-2425. Seriously, time and space are limited, so give us a call as soon as you can. We're all looking forward to seeing you on board.